Uh, this morning, I want to continue off of what we discussed last night with a very, very brief review, because I know Koreans like to start food on time, and so we have to be out of here by 12, um, but if it goes longer than 12, just remember I'm not Korean, so forgive me for my faults. So the first thing is, last night we discussed um, an experience that I recently had. I told you uh, the, the whole long saga that was my week, those of you that were here last night, and about how my computer was missing, $2,000 computer. And we discussed last night the idea that I came, the box was there, but the computer was not. Right? This is an iMac, 27-inch computer, and $2,000 machine. So you're thinking to yourself, you think because you see the box, the contents, you assume are present in the box. But of course, I was surprised, shocked, chagrined to find out that the computer was not there. That this friend had taken the computer, given it to someone else to use while they were doing some music together and only to find out that that person now does not want to return the computer and is breathing out threatenings and <laughs> violence and so on and so forth. And so now the police have to get involved. But we, we saw this as a potential illustration of where some of our lives are. That yes, we have the box, it has all the, the, the specs, the specifications, and the indication that what the box is presenting on the outside is actually on the inside. And eventually the owner is going to return to not just find the box, but the computer. Amen? Amen. So in the same sense, when Jesus returns, we can all fulfill the externals. We can give the presentation and the illusion that yes, what I'm presenting on the outside is actually in the inside. But when we believe in Jesus and in the religion of Jesus, the religion of Jesus is hard work. It's internal that gives substance to the external. And so as a result, if, if we are just presenting the externals of what it means to be a Christian, to be a Seventh-day Adventist, but in our hearts... There is no contest. When Jesus comes, he has no use for a box, just like I have no use for a box. That's exactly what he called the Pharisees, whitewashed sepulchers, filled with dead man's bones, an empty box. And so we, we built off of this concept to go forward in discussing what then does it really mean to be Seventh-day Adventist. And we talked about where we kind of landed that idea on the notion that being Seventh-day Adventist is about 100% utter dependence and trust in Jesus in every aspect of life. And we use the illustration of the mother hen being under his wings, but you recognize that some of us in the Korean community, we trust under the wings of money. And it's not just Koreans, it's all over the world, it's everywhere. We trust under the wings of education, or the wings of family, or the wings of tradition or the wings of community. As long as I hang with spiritual people, I will be saved. It doesn't work like that. As long as I'm in a spiritual location, doesn't work like that. And so I want to build off of this a little bit further to kind of get more to the heart of our theme in trusting in Christ, but our theme that I've chosen is above every name. Above every name. So this sermon I've entitled Hired Servants. One last thing before we pray, I quoted a statement last night that says, Christ was a Seventh-day Adventist to all intents and purposes. Maybe you've never read that statement. Now I want to start this, explain the statement, we'll pray and then dive into our sermon today. When we use the phrase, to all intents and purposes, we, ask, we must understand what we're discussing. The phrase was actually first used by King Henry VIII in England. He was basically legislating through Parliament that he wanted his word to be law. So if he said this person dies, they die. He says this person lives, they live. If he says, oh, that bank now belongs to me, it belongs to him. But he couldn't literally say, whatever I say is the law, because you have Parliament there. Doesn't make sense. So he said, well, for all intents and purposes, <laughs> this is what the case will be. So all intents and purposes specifically means this, right? What it means is that the thing that's being said to be true, it's not actually true, but it's so close to being so that we just consider it that way. So you only find it in legal documents. So they'll say, oh, you know, if this and this and this, 
for all intents and purposes. That means this may not necessarily be true. Jesus wasn't a Seventh-day Adventist in the sense that he was baptized into a local conference. Can you say amen? Are you with me? He wasn't extended the right hand of fellowship. No pastor put his hand over his head and said, in the name of the Father and the Son, because of your love for Jesus and your desire to be so baptized before this congregation. Christ didn't go through that. He didn't go through amazing facts, Bible studies. Amen. But Jesus, for all intents and purposes, was a Seventh-day Adventist. He was so close, you might as well just consider it to be true. Because however you define a Seventh-day Adventist, by whatever beliefs, by whatever behaviors, by whatever theology, it was all there in the Gospels. So if there was a Seventh-day Adventist church at that time in Jerusalem, Christ would have been in there. And he wouldn't have just been in the church, he would have been the head of the church. And he still is the head of the church. So if Christ is the standard of what a Seventh-day Adventist was or is, that begins to lead us to a point of examination. Am I a Seventh-day Adventist? If Jesus was, for all intents and purposes, am I? Are you? So I want to talk a little bit more about the character of Christ, who he is. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are completely indebted to you and to your spirit to understand the Bible. Jesus told us that when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide us into all truth. That he will not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show us things to come. Father, we want the spirit to teach us this morning. We have not come to listen to the words and the thoughts and the pontifications of a man. We want to hear the voice of God. And so we ask, Lord, that you would hide this man who is but dust in your sight in the shadow of your wings and that, Father, you would speak through me and that you would speak to me. Lord, that this experience may be actually worthy of the title worship to confess the worthiness of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for how you're going to speak to us this morning on this subject of hired servants. This is our prayer, and we trust that you will make this our experience as we offer this prayer from our hearts in Christ's name. Let all of God's people say, Amen. Take your Bibles and go to Matthew chapter 19. Don't have a lot of time, so I need you to go quickly. Matthew chapter 19. When you're there, you can say amen. amen. All right, the Bible says in Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 27, we have to get some context for our parable. It says, Then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left how much? We've left all, and we did what? We followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? Now, this is the context of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus. He said, what, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And Christ said, go and sell all that you have, give to the poor, come and follow me, and you will have treasures in heaven. So Peter heard this. The rich young ruler goes away sorrowful because he has great possessions. He doesn't want to let it go. Peter looks at Jesus and says, Lord, see, we have left how much? All. And we have followed you. So what do we get? The rich young ruler did We don't remember that being in the discipleship called by the Sea of Galilee. Follow me, I'll make you fishers of men, and uh, you'll receive treasures in heaven. I don't remember you mentioning that, Lord. But you just said it to the rich young ruler, so what do we get? So Jesus responds in verse 28. So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, that in the regeneration... When the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory, you who have what? Followed me. So He deals with people who follow Him. He says, if you follow me, this is what you will receive. If you submit to the experience of discipleship to Jesus. He says, if you followed me, you will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Verse 29. And everyone who has left... So notice, how much did they leave? They left all, right? He says, and these who have left, 
houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Now I want you to think about this for a moment. The first one is about if you follow him. The second one is if you left wife, mother, children, father, mother, sister, child, lands, all these things he says, if you left these things. This is an important principle to keep in mind as we think about following Jesus. Too many people think that in following Christ, they won't have to leave anything meaningful behind. I want you to notice that Christ says some people may have to leave their wives for his name's sake. Some people may have to leave their children for his name's sake. Some people may have to leave their father and mother for his name's sake. I know that's difficult in the Asian community. To say, well, I'm going to choose to follow Christ even if that rubs my parents the wrong way. And too many times we are raised in the Christian community to say God is number one. Isn't that what we are told, yes or no? It's important to stay close to Jesus. It's important to come to church. It's important to follow Christ. But guess what? All of a sudden you get a call from God and God says, hey, listen, I want you to stop going to school right now. Take a year off. All of a sudden your parents who are so about God being number one, guess what they have to say? Oh, uh, listen, you should finish school first. But that's not what the Holy Spirit is telling me. Well, now you're being disrespectful. You shouldn't talk to your parents that way. Wait a minute. I thought you raised me to follow Christ. You raised me to obey him, to trust him in all things. Even if that meant forsaking you. Because if we're preparing them for the mark of the beast, isn't that what we should be teaching them? Yes or no? Yes. But if that is the case, all of a sudden, and trust me, I've sat down with the young people time and time again, all over the world. It's fine to follow God as long as it fulfills the expectations of your parents. But if what God has for you doesn't match up with what your parents have for you, what do you do in that situation? And Jesus says, here is the promise if you have to leave something. We have to stop preaching a gospel that tells people if you follow Jesus, you don't leave anything. I'm going to tell you right now, I wasn't raised a Christian. I wasn't even raised a religious person. And when I went to preach at Loma Linda, and I was listening to the different things, by the third sermon I preached, this is years ago, I said to them, I said, you know, I'm preaching this sermon at an Adventist university very intentionally. Because I said, growing up in the, growing up in the Adventist church for you is a little bit different than a person who grew up on the streets and converted. And I said, here's the difference. Too many times we feel and we can call ourselves Adventists even though we're not walking in the ways of the church. But lo and behold, Sebastian comes along, gets a Bible study, starts coming to church, Sabbath school, etc. They say, well, this is what we believe. This is what you do. You don't eat this. You don't go to those places. The Sabbath is from this time to this time. Not when it's convenient for you. So as I'm learning these things, I'm thinking, man, I have to give up things I like to follow Christ. I had plenty of friends until I decided to be Adventist. Then I was in the Marines, trained to kill people. All of a sudden, I'm reading the Bible, thou shalt not kill. It's like, well, I was really excited about going to the Middle East. <laughs> I was in before 9-11. So I remember what it was like before and the difference afterwards. So when I was trained before 9-11, it was kind of like, yeah, you might see combat in your lifetime. You might. Then 9-11 happened. I was thinking, I'm ready to go. I'm trained with this M16 A2 service rifle. I'm trained with hand-to-hand -hand knives, pistols, whatever it takes. And we have a saying in the Marines, one shot, one kill. You don't waste bullets. So if you shoot, you make sure you end the person, first bullet. And you practice that for weeks. So now you're thinking, I'm sorry, on a rifle range, doing all these things. I'm ready to actually go into real combat. And just after 9-11 comes, guess what? I meet a girl on campus who's Seventh-day Adventist. <laughs> Starts talking to me about ministry of healing and all these things. I'm studying the Bible. I'm thinking to myself, 
as I start reading the Bible for the first time, and I'm like, this is not Jesus' work. I can't go around killing people. Even though it's what I'm trained to do. That's what I signed up to do. That's what I wanted to do. My eventual goal, become a sniper. That was, when I get to that place, boom. Then I could do what I want to do. But all of a sudden, when I was confronted with the decision, will you decide to follow Jesus? I had to recognize that in making that decision, it cost me something. But for too many of us, to name the name doesn't cost you anything except a few words and a little bit of breath and oxygen. I can just say it. So I said, you wonder why when people are converted, they come into church on fire? You wonder why they come in ready, guns blazing to go forward with the mission of the church? Because it costs them something. I'm not going to jump into the church and be average. I lost all my friends. So listen, you better believe, I believe 100% everything this Bible says. And I'm going to live up to 100% of everything this Bible says. I know what it's like on the other side of the fence. Wake up one day with your friend, next day he's dead. That's real life. But you got Adventists pretending to be thugs. I'm like, you don't know what a thug is. Because you dress like this and listen to this music, you have no concept what you're talking about. You grew up in a suburb, in a nice house with multiple bedrooms. <laughs> Point blank period. Don't try to be hard. You don't understand what you're getting into. Because there's one law of the streets. It's either me or you, and it's going to be you. That's the law of the streets. Whether it's money, whether it's relationships, whether it's a car, whether it's a job, whether it's a house, whatever it is. You say, well, there's competition. And the goal is, if it's going to be me or you, it's going to be you. You will take a loss at whatever means necessary. So that means, for those of us in this room who are like, I find it hard to give all to Jesus. You are on the fence right now of deciding to go all the way for Christ. You know why you're on the fence? Because it's going to hurt. Because it's going to cost you something. Because you've got to surrender something you like. And you want to continue doing it. And you may not necessarily see anything wrong with it. So you know what you do? You start digging up texts, quotes from Ellen White to try to support your view. But you already know the Holy Spirit is convicting you. It's time to give this thing up and follow Jesus all the way, 100%. But guess what? That will be too painful. That will cost you something. And because we're not willing to let it go, we inoculate the power of the church. The church is filled with a whole bunch of average people who are just nominal attendees. Like it's a stadium event. And then we sit down and we are wowed by the testimonies of other people. You know why they have those testimonies? Because they step out in faith. They trusted God when they had no one else left to trust. And please believe, if you hesitate this morning to go all the way, God will bring you to the precipice. Whether it's now or whether you're married with three children, you will come to that day where you will recognize, I have nothing left to trust. Everything I built, everything I had, everything I put my faith in and thought I was good to go. All of a sudden, it's on the line and now I have, I can't trust this person. I can't trust that person. I can't trust my friends. I can't trust my wife. I can't trust my husband. Can't trust my pastor. Can't trust my elders. All you have is the Lord. Then you will feel what every convert feels. All of a sudden, someone comes into your world and says, yeah, all these people were lying to you. All those pastors in that church, that's not true. The Sabbath is on Saturday. All those people that told you this and this about this text, that's not true. This is what, this is what I'm hearing. So you want me to take all these people I love and trusted and respected and just throw that out the window. That's not easy to do. And the only thing that pushes you over that line is if you know the Lord. Because you're not going to give up something like that easily unless you know 
that you can trust Christ and his word. You won't do it. And that's why many of us sitting here this morning, we haven't done it yet. We just attend and your parents are praying for you, hoping one day you will actually cross the line and become a real Christian. Not just do it because your parents expect it or because you don't want to hear their mouth. But because you yourself believe it. It is no longer your father and mother's religion. It's yours. So, I let you know ahead of time. You have a decision to make. You can make your life easy and decide this morning to follow him and to leave whatever needs to be left for his namesake. And trust, he will reward you. But you know, as Peter is grappling with this, this sets the context for our parable. And Christ doesn't stop in verse 29. He says in verse 30, but many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Now this is interesting as he goes into the parable that we just read. It says that this landowner, he went out and he went to hire these people in the marketplace. Now we have to move quickly because we don't understand Jewish economy, so we don't really get the significance of the parable. So I just have to go to one text. Let's go to Deuteronomy 24. We're going to come back to Matthew 20. Deuteronomy 24, verse 14. Deuteronomy 24, 14 and 15. Are you there? All right. The Bible says, you shall not oppress a what? Hired servant. Now, first of all, this is a person who is a hired servant. Let's finish the whole text and then we'll bring out the points. He says, who is poor and needy, whether one of your brethren or one of the aliens who is within your land, who is in your land, within your gates, each what? Day. You shall give him his wages and not let the sun go down on it. For he is poor and has set his heart on it. Lest he cry out against you to the Lord and it be sin to you. So I want you to understand the context of Jesus' parable. In the economy of the Jews, the lowest person was a hired servant. They were not like Eleazar. Eleazar was a bond servant. He was someone that Abraham trusted to go find a wife for his son. That's not a usual servant. You don't hire people to do that. You know, this is not like Molly Maid. It's like, oh yeah, I need someone to find a wife for my son. How much does this cost? I'll pay for airfare and everything. No, that's not the situation. Eleazar, he lived with Abraham. He was literally his right-hand man. It would be kind of what we might call a butler or something like that. Lives in the house, takes care of everything, has passwords, access to everything. Then below that, you have actual servants like Hagar. So now Hagar, she wasn't Eleazar. You're not going to send her to find a wife for your son. But she also lived with them. She served them. And she was always free to leave. But you see, a hired servant, you only use him because you have a task to be completed. And that's why the Bible says each day you pay him his wages. This is a person who's literally working hand to mouth. So when you talk about a hired servant, the Bible says, first of all, there was a tendency in Israel to oppress them. Why would there be a tendency to oppress a hired servant? What the Bible tells you. It says in verse 14, he is poor and needy. Do you know what the word poor means? I don't think we do. We like to use the word, but I don't think we know what poor means. So I felt like it's important to kind of clarify a, a certain definition for this. The word poor, according to the dictionary, means lacking sufficient money to live at a standard considered comfortable or normal in a society. Lacking sufficient money to live at a standard considered normal or comfortable in a given society. They go on to say that people who are too poor to afford a telephone. Now, you have some synonyms, right? People are impoverished. So when you talk about a hired servant, you're talking about a brother who is strapped for cash. He's broke. He's penniless. He's got nothing. But it doesn't stop and say he's poor. The Bible says he's poor and needy. Now I thought, why are you repeating the same concept? But then I had the look of the word needy. 
You know the word needy? It's very interesting. The word needy means a person lacking the necessities of life. So poor means you don't have the money to live at the standard of everybody else, right? This is how you should live. You should have a house, food, lights, you know, running water in our society. But it says he's not just poor, he's needy. That means he's lacking the basic necessities of life. So now you have a person who's poor and needy who's coming to work for you. And guess what? People look at that and they say, I can take advantage of this guy. He's so desperate. Hey, man, I just fixed your thing. Oh, I'll pay you tomorrow. Come back. So the person doesn't want to pay this guy. So he keeps coming, chasing a carrot, thinking finally this guy's going to pay him, only to find out that even Jews were doing this to their own people. Knowing the brother is poor and needy, he's got a wife and kids to feed, he's working day by day to survive. And people would actually deny this man money and exploit him, take advantage of his broken condition. But the Bible goes on to say that each day he's supposed to get paid. And the Bible says that he was a person who was so desperate that all he had was hope. And you know what his highest hopes were? Was that he would actually get paid at the end of the day. I don't think we can resonate with that. Think about your own, your own hopes and dreams. You hope one day, right, that your kids will grow up, they will love the Lord. You hope one day, right, your house will be paid off, you can retire, chill with your wife, take long walks on the beach, vacations, all those things. But this man, when it says he sets his heart upon it, that means this is his hope. His hope is just simply that he will get paid today so he can come home with food for his family. That's all he hopes for every day. So now when you go back to the parable in Matthew chapter 20, and Jesus says the man went out to hire laborers in the vineyard. And these men were there offering themselves in the marketplace. And as they're offering themselves in the marketplace, the Bible says that he goes out to hire these laborers. And in verse 2, it says, Now when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. So, this man is out there at 6 o'clock in the morning. So these first workers, the day starts at 6 a.m. So first of all, when you come into the marketplace and you're looking for laborers, you, you realize to yourself, man, these guys must be something. They're out here at 6 a.m. You know, we had a devotion at 7 a.m. this morning. And people are like, I don't know if I can make it to 7 a.m. worship. But you got brothers who are ready to go, ready to work at 6 a.m. In order to get to the marketplace at 6 a.m., you had to leave long before. So they recognize their condition. I'm desperate, I'm poor, I'm needy, I can't waste time. So that brother wants to make sure that he works a whole day, and if he works a whole day, there's no risk or danger that they won't pay him a full day's wage. And he agrees on a denarius. But in verse 3, something interesting happens in the parable. The Bible says, and the owner went out about the third hour. That means two hours of the workday is gone. It's 8 o'clock in the morning. At 8 o'clock in the morning, he goes out. He saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you also go into, your vi into my vineyard, and whatsoever is right, I will pay you. Now let me ask you a question. If you went out for a job interview... And as you're sitting in the job interview, in business school, we talk about the fact that very important questions to ask in your interview. And one of them is to ask, what is the general pay scale for this position? And the reason why that's an important question to ask is because it shows confidence in your abilities and your ability to add value to the company. So if you're interviewing me, you see value in what I can do. So therefore, I want to know what value in terms of money do you put upon my abilities? So you should ask that question in an interview. People who don't ask the question come across as unconfident. So that's why we tell people in an interview, you should ask how much money. So the first hour workers, I imagine he came to them the same way. Hey, come work in my vineyard, I'll pay you what's right. 
They were like, nah, bruh. I'm a hired servant. You know how many times I heard this before? Oh, yeah, I'll pay you what's right. At the end of the day, no money. Or he says, oh, you didn't do the job the way I wanted to. You got to come back tomorrow, then I'll pay you. So the first hour workers are like, listen, bro, people take advantage of us all the time. I need this in contract writing. So they break out their contract, put the amount down. As they put the amount down, they go to work in the vineyard. But the next people, at 8 o'clock in the morning, he says, listen, I'll pay you what's right. And guess what? They actually went and worked for that amount of money. Would you go to work if someone interviewed you and you said, hey, how much is this position? Oh, don't worry, we'll pay you what's right. How many of you would take that job? No one. You know why you won't take the job? Because you don't trust them. Am I telling the truth? You're like, look, I'm not going to sign up. Oh, yeah, sign this form, W-2, and all these different things. And next thing you know, they say, oh, we'll pay you what's right. No, 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 no. I need to know specific numbers. <laughs> That's what we're going to say. But you know, the third hour workers, the sixth hour workers, the ninth hour workers, they all went with that agreement. Why would they go work for a man who told them, I'll pay you what's right? The only thing you can find to justify their actions is because they trusted him. Now, finally, he comes to the 11th hour workers. He says, why have you been standing here all day? They say, no one hired us. So after they, they have this agreement, he says, go work, I'll pay you what's right. Now, I want you to know, 11th hour means one hour of work left. Have you ever hired a person for one hour of work? Oh yeah, we're going to come in, pay you for one hour. Now, maybe if you're an hourly worker, we pay you for an hour. But if you're a daily worker, we don't pay you for an hour. We pay you for a day of work. So these guys go in, it's time, it's time for the rewards to come out. Verse 8, so when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last onto the first. And when those came who were hired about the eleventh hour, they each received a denarius. Now we read the parable, so I don't have to go over the details again. But to start digging our teeth into this thing, this man looks at this 11th hour worker who worked one hour and paid him the same amount that he agreed with the first hour worker. Obviously, the men were not happy. How could you make these people equal to us? We bore the heat and the burden of the day. Do you know what their mindset is? Their mindset is, is that, listen, when it comes to working in this economy, you get paid for your work. Isn't that true? How many of you guys get paid a full day for one hour of work? If your job found out that you put down full day for wage, even though you only work one hour a day, you'd be fired. This is inefficient. This is not helping. We don't need that kind of employment. <laughs> but Jesus says... In heaven's economy, people are not rewarded based on the amount of work that they do. I don't pay people and I don't reward them based on what they gave up. So here Peter's talking to Christ and saying, we left all, we followed you, what do we have? And Jesus is saying, listen, yes, you will receive these things, but I need you to understand something. You're not receiving them because you were the first ones to follow me. Because guess who would be a first hour worker? Peter. Andrew. James and John. The first ones to answer this call. To follow Christ. John the Baptist. So all these people who came early in time, it can be easy for you like Peter to say, Hey Lord, we left all and followed you. This is two years into Jesus' ministry. So all of a sudden, Christ is looking at them and saying, Listen, Yes, you're going to receive this and this and eternal life in the world to come, but you're not receiving it because you did anything. God, in the kingdom of heaven, He does not reward people according to their merit. 
He does not reward people according to their ability, the visible sign of their work, or because of the amount of work that they have done. The text says, and this is the key text, he says in verse 14, he says, take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? I want you to understand something about what Christ is talking about in his character. Right now, we feel like financially, in an earthly sense, we can't relate to a hired worker. But the problem is this parable is not about earthly economy. It's about a heavenly economy. And in heaven's economy, everyone in this room is a hired worker. Everyone in this room is poor and needy. You do not have what it takes to sustain the life that angels live in heaven above. You and I cannot live up to the standard that is considered normal and comfortable for people in a heavenly kingdom. We are poor in spirit. We are poor in righteousness. That's why he says, you're blessed if you hunger and thirst after righteousness. You can't hunger and thirst after something you possess. So if you and I are poor and needy and we are oftentimes exploited, we're oftentimes oppressed, oftentimes people say, oh, I see he's got these abilities. Let me work this brother to the bone. You know, people are going to be lost just because of their jobs. There will be people lost because they dedicated their whole life to their career. And they ended up leaving God rather than leaving their job and being saved in the end. Because there's some jobs that are not calculated to help you to reveal the character of Christ. There are some jobs that are not designed for us to be saved. And because of that, we need to leave the job. But there will be people who will be lost simply because they won't leave their job. But in heaven's economy, as we are poor, as we are needy, and our hope is that after we have suffered through this thing called life, after we've labored for the Lord, and we say, Lord, I have done what you've asked me to do. But the agreement is, when you and I come to serve Christ, when we give ourselves over to his service, to his kingdom, to his worship, we must recognize that when he comes, he says, I'll pay you what's right. But you know, the problem with that is, too many of us are like the first hour workers. As soon as our mother dies of cancer, we don't want to pray. Lord, I'll keep praying as long as you keep my mother alive. As soon as our parents get divorced, we don't want to pray and come to church. I prayed that God would keep my parents together. It didn't work. Lord, I prayed that I would make the basketball team. Lord, I prayed that I would get into Harvard or to Juilliard or to Stanford, and God let me down. So now we don't want to pray. We don't want to seek God because prayer doesn't work. Lord, I went out on the streets and knocked on doors. I won no souls. No one came and signed up for Bible studies. I had the worst day ever. People gave me these hardcore rejections. Why am I going out to serve God? Because we are a first-hour worker. And this person goes out two doors into his thing. He has a powerful testimony. And we're angry. Lord, I went to a Bible college. I learned evangelism. I know how to preach evangelistic series. This guy can't even preach. And he baptizes all these people. Because God doesn't reward according to your merit. And this principle is not just about work. It's not just about labor. It's not just about love and relationships. This principle is about salvation. Brothers and sisters, the Bible tells us that it's not according to our works and according to our righteousness, but according to His mercy that God has saved us. But you see, to put this into perspective for us, as I bring this to a close, you and I may sit down and we may ask ourselves, you know, what great thing can I do for God? Martin Luther was one of the major pillars of the Reformation. 
Paul was the first evangelist to the Gentiles. Peter was the leader of the early church. John the Baptist was the forerunner of Christ. Moses was one of the greatest types of Christ in the Old Testament. Enoch went to heaven, the first one, without seeing death. Elijah was translated. 24 elders were resurrected. Oh, then after us, there was uh, John was on the island of Patmos, gave us the book of Revelation. Daniel gave us his prophecies that have guided us all these years. All these people have done amazing work. And then we go back to our pioneers. J.N. Andrews memorizes the New Testament in five languages. First missionary overseas to France. James Wright, the first time he went out to preach, baptized a thousand people at 22 years old with no Bible college training. We read these stories, we read about their sacrifices, we read about their testimonies, and all we're saying is there's nothing great for me to do. As soon as you get a ministry idea, just look on the index and you'll see, oh yeah, they got this ministry, that ministry, the church is already doing that. Why, what is there left for me to do? And if you are feeling that way, then you are feeling like an 11th hour worker. And the parable says, Jesus wants 11th hour workers. He tells them, you go also and serve in my vineyard and I will give you what is right. And when you go, guess what? The 11th hour worker, his whole mindset is different. He's the only one walking around that vineyard happy to have a job. You ever wonder people complain about ministry and evangelism? The 11th hour worker is the only person who's excited to be working. He's the only person who's willing to do whatever the landowner wants him to do. There is no service beneath him. The very fact that the God will bring me here for one hour, I'll do whatever he asks me to do. I waited here all day thinking about my daughter, thinking about my son, thinking about my wife and saying one hour left, the sun's about to go down, I got nothing in my pockets to come home. And all of a sudden a man looks at me and says, I want you to come work for me. And I'll pay you what's right. And he's thinking, the fact that the God will pay me at all. So then, if this is true in this heaven's economy, and this isn't about work and profession and job, and this is about salvation, what do you think we are going to feel when we get to heaven? You think you're going to go to heaven and be like, oh, this person is saved? This person, I can't believe this person is exalted above me in the kingdom of heaven. No, you're not going to get there that way because if you get to the gates of heaven and they say only people who've done amazing things can enter here, please tell me, what amazing thing do you do for God? Please tell me, what movements did you start? Please tell me, what, how many people did you baptize? The white Moody baptized over a million people in his lifetime. Prayed with over 75 million, personally. I don't want to be next to the gates, next to him. <laughs> hey, Dwight, what did you do? Oh, baptized a million, prayed with over 75 million, led revival all across the world in different countries. Charles Spurgeon, oh yeah, baptized all these people every week. His prayer meeting was attended fully by the church. 3,000. Every Wednesday. Don't want to be next to him at the gates. You know why? Because we are thinking God rewards us according to what we have done. But when you get to heaven, this parable tells us the person that is most rewarded that is most highly exalted is not the person who did the most. It's not the martyr who sacrificed his life. It's not the reformer that lived his life from city to city in persecution, bearing the heat and the burden of the day. But the reality is, it could be you. Not because of what you've done. Not because of all the results that came from your labor but simply because of the spirit in which you did the things that God asked of you. What would you do if you got to heaven and right next to God 
he pointed at you and said, this is your seat. And as you're walking up to that throne seat, you pass Paul, you pass Moses, you pass Enoch. Are you catching what I'm saying? As you're walking by all of these people that you may look up to and respect and think there's no way I could be exalted above these people. And Christ says, this is your seat on my right hand. And you say, why? I tell you, the person who's going to be most highly exalted in heaven is the one who will be shocked. But the person going to heaven thinking, oh yeah, I'm not surprised. <laughs> I, know, I, I know I'm highly exalted. I know I'm going this way. I mean, you won't even make it to the kingdom. <laughs> But even though they all received the same reward, the more work that they did, the longer they served the Lord, there was a greater temptation to think that God was rewarding them according to their merit, not according to his purpose. So don't leave this place thinking, oh Lord, I didn't do my devotion so God can't bless me. God doesn't reward according to merit. He rewards according to his purpose. Don't think, oh, I didn't go to a Bible college. I'm not a great preacher. God doesn't reward according to your merit or abilities. He rewards according to your spirit in which you do what he asks you to do. According to his purpose. So when he asked the man, he said, is it wrong for me to do what I want? If I wish to give to this man the same I gave to you, is that wrong? Because it's mine. It's mine to give. I know my time is up. Bow your heads with me. Father in heaven, there's someone in this room that does not trust you. There's someone in this room that thinks that God blesses them according to what they do or don't do what they have done, or what they plan to do. And this afternoon, God is asking a very simple thing from that person. He's asking, if you come to serve me, I will give you what is right. I need you to come trust that whatever you leave behind, whatever it costs you to answer the call that Jesus has put upon your life, you don't have to worry. Jesus will reward you, not according to your merit, but according to his purpose. And so I'm wondering if, is there, if there's someone here in this room that says, I haven't been trusting the Lord, and therefore I've been holding back. And this morning, I'm ready to come to God and I'm ready to say to them, say to him, Lord, I'm willing to come and serve. Just give me what's right. If that person is you, I want you to stand to your feet, whoever you are. You say, Lord, I'm willing to serve. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed. I don't want you guys looking around, seeing if your friends are standing. This between you and Jesus. And if you're not coming or you're not standing, then you need to pray. Say, Lord, I'm not going to sit here and trust. Oh, yeah, based on what I do, God's going to reward me. No. He's rewarding you according to his purpose for you. Sometimes God just wants to bless you. And that's a hard thing to accept. But the more undeserving you feel, <laughs> the more prepared you are to receive his goodness. Anyone else says, Lord, I'm ready to serve you and I trust you'll give me what's right. My last invitation is for that person who's been holding back, going all the way for Christ.
because you're afraid of what you have to give up. And so this morning, today is your day. I'm going to decide to follow Jesus. No turning back. And I'm ready to go all the way. Is there someone here that has not crossed that line? They've been holding back a part of their lives or a part of themselves from the Lord Jesus Christ. And you are now ready to cross that line. I want to invite you to stand to your feet. I have not gone all the way with Jesus. Because I'm afraid of what it's going to cost me. So this morning, I'm ready to lay that down. And say, Lord, I'm ready to go all the way, 100%. Anyone else? Says, Lord, I haven't gone all the way, but today I'm going all the way. I invite you to stand right where you are. This is between you and the Lord. Nothing to be ashamed of to follow Christ, because Christ is not ashamed of you. Praise the Lord. I'll only hold it for another few seconds and then I'm going to pray. Amen. Anyone else? You say, Lord, I've been holding back. I'm not holding back anymore. I'm not going to worry about what it's going to cost me to follow Christ. I'm just going to let it go and follow Him. Stand. Whoever you are, if the Holy Spirit is talking to you. Father in heaven, you see these who have stood. And Father, some of us are standing because we are coming to serve God and trust that he's not going to reward us according to our merit, but he's going to reward us according to his purpose. And so, Father, we want to commit our lives, ourselves, and our service to you with no regard for how much the reward will be, but to trust that God will reward us according to his purpose. And we can trust that he will do exceedingly abundantly above all we could ever ask or think. Father, I also pray for us who have stood. We who have stood because we're no longer going to hold back anymore. There's something we're afraid to let go of to follow Jesus. And so this morning we're saying we're willing to leave it to follow him. We're not going to be on the fence anymore, but we're going to cross the line and go all the way for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can trust that this will be the most joyful, adventurous, purpose-filled times of our lives is when we decided to go all the way for Jesus. Thank you, Father, for these who have stood. You may be seated. And Father, I pray that you would bless each and every one of them, that you would guide them, that your hands may rest upon them, and that you may turn them into new men and women. Through the power and indwelling of your Holy Spirit is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.